Hi everyone, welcome to the Perma Podcast. James Prescott, your host here. Welcome to the show. Um, I'm delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today, someone I've been really excited about having on the show for quite a while. And uh, yeah, welcome to the show, Chad E. Jarnigan. Yeah, thanks for having me, James. Um, yeah, it's really great to have you on. Um, Chad, um, does a lot of things, wears a lot of hats. Um, he's a, a priest, uh, an Enneagram coach, a, um, an author, a podcaster, a musician, um, and he's got some great wisdom and doing some great work. And yeah, it's just a real privilege to have you on. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, man. I've been looking forward to this as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it's funny because we just encountered each other in uh, a few months ago, and yet we've um, we've both been checking each other's work out and uh, found that we're doing very similar things and talk, saying very similar things. It's uh, it's really great to encounter someone like that. So yes, for sure. Uh, so just tell us a bit of your story. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of connections here. That's what I've been looking forward to, just from uh, all of our lives, kind of inform where we uh, where we head and who we connect with and who we may not connect with, you know? And so I've been mm-hmm. kind of looking forward to that and in this space. And, you know, I, uh, I come from a, a family that's uh, three generations removed um, from England on uh, one side. Oh, wow. And uh, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to be <laughs> now to be Anglican. Um, it's kind of funny, and uh, I I uh, spent a lot of time touring when uh, I was in my probably early twenties, and before that I was just uh, really into baseball and music and uh, lots of uh, just wanting to be a kid, right? And then later I uh, got to be more serious with baseball actually in even into college and mm. baseball simultaneously with with music and uh and that kind of i've always been a reader those kinds of things but when i toured i experienced a lot of life uh, just mm. from that dynamic from uh several countries but much of the united states and most of my travels took me into different churches of different denominations of different backgrounds, um, many conferences and conventions and things like that. And so I experienced a lot of my formative years really just on a bus or in a van traveling the country. And so that sounds like a lot of fun until it isn't. And hmm. we, uh, it gave me a lot of time to read, uh, contemplate, begin to experience Experiment in a way of uh, finding true identity. And mm. I think I stumbled upon that concept of true self and false self before I had really heard anyone speak of it. Uh, I kind of would see myself on the stage as a certain person and, and even just on the road, like even in the green room and uh, catering and meeting different people every night. But then who I was when I was quiet and uh, was quite different. Yeah. And when I traveled, uh, I was always an introvert, um, mm. but it was, you turn it on when you get on stage and yeah. then you turn it off 
and uh, many many artists and creatives are like that. That that's yeah. not unusual whatsoever. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Many and it's uh, the stumbling into the enneagram awareness was incredibly enlightening for me. That allowed me to dive deeper into self awareness and really began kind of unpacking some early childhood trauma that I wasn't even aware of. And then uh, eventually having legitimate counseling and therapy as well as really good mentors uh, and, and really learning from a lot of contemplative voices, like everyone from Henry Nowen to Thomas Merton and uh, really Ronald Rollheiser has been incredibly influential and John O'Donohue. Um, those the types of books and things that I read while I was on the road, yeah, and uh, finding myself, so to speak, yeah, and uh, and then over the last uh, last decade or so, um, finding more of uh, really finding home in mm. sacramental spaces, uh, which to me has been the Anglican way, and yeah, I love it. Uh, it's mm. been fascinating to watch. Um, Many of my other friends and colleagues do the same, and uh, that's been quite a joy, to be honest. And so I, I love to always learning and uh, finding something new um, to unpack and research even more. And, and I'm an Enneagram 5, so by nature I'm constantly researching and wanting to know more about mm. something, what something ticks. Um, but I have an incredible high for wing um, almost equivalent so I, uh, I want things to be unique uh, like things yeah. that are creative and, and heartfelt and authentic as well so um, that being said uh, just experiencing life and, and seeing so many different ways of faith uh, and then also being hurt and traumatized by the church itself um, coming to find refuge in a different stream of the church has been probably the healthy way forward for myself and eventually looking back even some of my mentors and therapists were saying you know you need to feel and own your story uh, even the parts that hurt and I began to go back and look at some of my journals and some of my essay type of uh, blog posts or things like that back in the day and created, kind of put together this book framework and then started unpacking that a little bit. And it's, so initially it was a bit of a, a therapeutic process of reconstructing my faith after years of deconstruction and finding a new way forward under a non-evangelical framework has been probably the most life-giving um, energy that I've experienced over the last uh probably close to a decade so uh, I, I think that gives us some framework you know to kind of start with yeah it's really interesting because because yeah i mean the, the the spiritual community that i'm currently part of is it means well it's kind of an anglican based community mm-hmm. we meet in an anglican church up in the center of london but it's not an Anglican church in the traditional sense because it's more of a mm. contemplative community. So mm-hmm. we use a lot of um, Teze, we use um, old liturgy, we use Celtic liturgy, we do contemplation, mm. silence, um, 
you know, while still having the Eucharist and still having all of, um, you know, agape meals. So it's it's, and I've kind of rediscovered my faith there, um, in a yeah. completely different way. And, um, I mean, like my experience was kind of similar to yours. I was in a kind of evangelical church, um, and it just became too restricted for me. <laughs> physically actually I physically felt that like um, in my body and uh, people who listen to the podcast will have heard me talk about it but um, going into that community for the first time I remember I could physically breathe in the church for the first time for a long time oh, fascinating. it was like I had physically felt me brought myself breathe out and I was like I hadn't felt done that in a, and I realized I hadn't done that in church for years you know it was um, it was quite a profound moment so uh, um yeah so you lot so a lot of your experience uh, a lot of your experience um, resonates with mine um yeah that's beautiful so thank you yeah um i was gonna say something else and i've completely forgotten <laughs> i love when that happens <laughs> i feel like there's a but, there's an ongoing resurgence of these more ancient streams of faith Mm, that ironically i was just speaking with someone this morning about this how interesting it is that people that are deconstructing their faith or even leaving or renouncing their faith if they were to ever re-engage with that it ends up the doorway is an ancient archway (laughs) um it usually ends up being more of an ancient path and i think that's very fascinating because we come off as probably to someone from the outside coming in. Um, our parish seems a bit more old school in the sense of more of a higher church expression. However, much like it sounds like the space that you're in, we, we are a bit more contemplative and we don't do all of the right things and all of the, uh, the rigmarole kind of thing, but it is still very much a part of what it is uh, it doesn't feel much different than any other episcopal church around town but there's a, a bit more uh, space for reverence contemplation and uh, i believe that we we try to reflect beauty or uh, kind of unearth beauty versus preach and um and talk to people, I think that there's there's a bit more of a posture variation when we uh, are allowing ourselves to come in with a bit more of a, a reverent posture of listening instead of one always on the offensive. Um, that's that's mm. quite a difference. And I'm not saying all Anglican churches are offensive. It just but they have their set liturgies just as much as anyone else. And uh, I'm finding that it's to be a really beautiful place for allowing people to rest and sense the peace that they may or may not even know that they're in need of. And, uh, yeah. and it gives us a sense of that, um, uh, I would say, that, that koinonia, that, you know, that, that the Greek of connectedness, of togetherness that many of us have isolated ourselves from for so long that we're wanting something like another healthier version of something. Uh, and I think that that's where liturgical and sacramental spaces, especially contemplative spaces, 
allow for. Um, so I, I just so of course I can speak to that for a while, and I'll I'll make myself cease. <laughs> no, it's it, it, it it's so true. Um, I think it's so important when you're in spiritual community that you can just have that peace that you can just mm. be you and yeah. it be okay you know yeah, <laughs> right? sure. that you don't have to fit to any standard or you know mm. structure or whatever that you can just be yourself where you wherever you are mm. in your journey and it'd be okay yeah. so um so tell us a bit about your your work um because uh you've done a lot of you, you host a podcast, and you've just written a book as well. So, tell us a bit about tell us a bit about the book because it's a really interesting subject. The book, <laughs> yeah, and that that just comes from experience of you know just uh, logging life, so to speak. Mm. And uh, once I started putting some words uh, and, and the research to my thoughts uh, it, it was pretty interesting I, I spent a lot of time trying to articulate the framing of what I was trying to say and after meeting with several friends who are um, you know kind of in that world of, of writing and creating uh, whether books or, or art of some sort um, they really helped me to say, you know, you need to do this because this is not just your story. This is many others as well. And so, you know, it's that term of um, ex-evangelical and post-evangelical have like started circulating over the last several years. I, uh, I always resonated with that because I've never really truly considered myself an evangelical uh, from a definition standpoint. But I, it allowed me to... Um, research where I was coming from and then also where I was hoping to eventually be. So I, you know, I looked at this book as a set the tone for it's called Learning to Be Reconstructing Peace and Spiritual Health. And it comes from this idea of a pilgrimage mm. that life is. Uh, you know, so many times we look at things as an instantaneous resolve or result. And we want the, we want it here and now. We want a button or want a click, and it's finished. Yeah. Um, we want shortcuts um, for everything, and there's no shortcut for wellness, mental or emotional or spiritual wellness. And so I I hope that I set the tone with you know the book in, in that sense that uh, it is saturated with lots of Henry Nowen. Uh, which I was um, really grateful that uh, the mm. Henry Nowen Society and um, Karen Pascal, their executive director, endorsed the book because it was it was such the heart of Nowen throughout these pages and reading much of his work over the last decade that was uh, incredibly beautiful uh, and, and healing um, for me personally. So the book is really for anyone uh, that's, you know, that's, wanting and hopeful for spiritual health, you know, and peace and uh, someone that has deconstructed but is discontent in the fullness of the deconstruction. Someone that who would like to put some of the pieces back together again. And uh, I think that that's what the book is trying to do 
Um, and I'm, I'm hearing back from it because it's been released in ebook form for the last couple of months and paperback next, uh, well, in February. So uh, it's really cool to hear what is resonating. And I think, uh, truthfully, James, I believe this book is a primer for something more to come. And uh, I'm not really sure what that is, uh, but I think that it's just probably going to be some more material, more books. Um, but I, I think that it's hopefully helping people reconnect to spiritual um, ways of life. Uh, I think the spiritual practices that lay underneath this is what's different. There's something different about a spiritual practice than a spiritual performance. And, uh, and I hope that that's what will continue to uh, resonate. And uh, the practices bring life, performance, just, uh, it just, that's unsustainable. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading this book. It's, it's um, just the title as well, Learning mm. to Be, you know. Um, but so such a, like finding rhythms for spiritual health is, and contemplative practice is something that I've been exploring as well. Mm. So fascinating, fascinating subject. Um, and I mean, what are the kind of spiritual practices that you use, the, the contemplative practices that you've found to be helpful? Hmm. Yeah, I uh, find that centering prayer has probably been a starting point, and it's something that I come back to on a, a mostly a daily basis. And, and that's uh, also a Lectio Divina, so oh. like that divine reading of just, you know, you can do that with anything, but you know, especially when you're talking of, uh, you know, Scripture and uh, different portions of uh, of the Bible just really come to life in a different way. And I say this to most people: it is um, prayer is something that really kind of evokes baggage. Yeah. If, if someone says, "Well, you need to pray more," you need to have you prayed about it or whatever. That is the wrong end. That's the wrong feedback. It's, Absolutely. It's coming from a place of, I mean, that triggers many of us, right? And yeah. you're like, well, no, I, I don't want to do anything like that. And But, but truthfully, what, what we've made of prayer is in, an incredible disservice for anyone who is trying to, you know, figure out what it is to be a disciple uh, of Jesus, especially what if prayer was never meant to be prayer separately from meditation? It was always meant to be prayer and meditation. That meant one word. It meant one embodiment. And so when we think prayer, most of the time we think activity. We think of, I'm asking for this, this, and this. And, and then some of us get to that place where it's like, well, God doesn't really seem to be even hearing me, so I'm just going to stop talking to him. And that's part of the issue is because that's a one dimension of a fuller dimension that we're missing, that we've been missing for centuries. And so when one actively prays something, it is not just a speaking and asking of something, it is a being. 
It is a state of listening. It is an awareness that allows us to slow down and allow our souls to catch up to our body. And the funny thing is that I've heard from people before, it's like, well, you sound like you are buying into Eastern philosophy more than you are Christianity. And I have to remind them from a historical sense, the gospel went east before it went west. And I think if we can understand that these are not mutually exclusive, that you have to understand that there is a beautiful communion that happens when we rest and listen, because how else would we actually even know how to pray and ask for anything if we don't understand what our need is? Because it's all on the surface. It's, it's all the, well, I need more finances. I need more money. I need to do this for the children. I need to do this for my job. And, and all of those things are exteriors. That is nothing of the inner life. And so if we could just reframe the concept of prayer, not as a doing, but more as a being, uh, that those types of postures change us from the inside out. And, uh, and I hope that that's kind of what's happening with this book, but that's a spiritual practice of mine. When I say prayer, meditation, or whether it be centering prayer, or even a Lectio Divina practice, um, that is all kind of together. Like, I have an old-school kneeler in my office. I wish you could see it. And I had a gentleman make this for me. Um, And it looks like it was taken out of an old, you know, Anglican or Catholic church, you know, from the, I don't know, the 6th century. It's crazy. And it's not very comfortable. Um, but there's a pad there, and then it just, it allows me to have a that uh, it allows me to have a posture rather than just kneeling on the floor, which is nothing wrong with that either. Um, but for me, it's an act of uh, that begins my listening posture. And but I can also do that, you know, sitting with my legs crossed or on my yoga mat. <laughs> Um, but yeah. I think for me, it's like I, I, I like the certain types of sacred rhythms that uh, that provide just the right type of um, I don't know, just the right type of posture. I would say. Yeah, I love that. I love that you got a kneeler. That's so great. Um, yeah, that's just I love I love those. One of the things I love about old Anglican churches. Is, uh, mm-hmm. is is those kneelers where you can where you where you get in a pew and a, you can just kneel and pray, like yeah. um, sometimes in an empty church as well, which is really just amazing. Yeah. And yeah, yoga again that resonates with me too. Um, mm-hmm. Yoga yoga has actually helped me connect with God in a way that I never have before. Um, yeah, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, and I think I had a, I had a transcendent spiritual experience in a contemplative service about a, almost a year ago. And it, I think mm. partly it was because I was doing yoga regularly, mm. and that I was yeah. more in tune with my body and in my my inner kind of my core, if you want to call it that, my my inner self, my my deepest self. Yes. Um, and then going into the spirit and being in a spiritual kind of place, you know, as well. That all kind of just somehow tied together, and I had this 
experience, which again, people who listen that regularly will know, but um, I'm certain that yoga had a part to play in that, yeah. Sure. Yeah, because it's holistic, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, our spiritual, our, our spirituality, our emotions, our mental state, our physical bodies, all of these things are intertwined. Mm. And I think in months of, it's really unfortunate that over the course of time, what the church has done has made it more about doing or the the attendance side of uh, that type of activity, or or old school, um, whether it's you know what are catechism or confirmations of your thing, or in the new sense of like you know whatever the the rock show. Um, attendances, you know, it's all of those things are just uh, distractions mm. um, to to the bigger picture. We we can only do so much with one dimension of our being. Yeah, we can only do so much with our minds. We can only do so much with our bodies. But they're they're all intertwined. They're connected, and so if one becomes unhealthy, it will eventually affect the rest. Yeah. And I, I think that the church, and I love this because many priests and um, even bishops, they get it. They, they're they seeing a kind of, re, of a resurgence of spiritual health, knowing that it has to look different than it's looked before. Or maybe we're actually saying that it's okay, but maybe for the first time we do in our parish, is we tell people that, you know, you need therapy. And, and if you're not in therapy, we have a vetted list of therapists that we would love to recommend to you. And oh, yeah. we look at that from a perspective of saying that, yes, Jesus can heal us from our darkest places, but he also uses therapists. <laughs> it work as well. So it's Jesus plus therapists, and a lot of people just say, you know, you don't need therapists, you need Jesus. That's my point. The point is that that is, that's absurd um, how the, the God who made science and made our minds and made our being um, is using this practice and art form um, to help us heal. Uh, and, and I think that that's uh, probably a new way forward for many people. And uh, I hope that that continues to be a thing um, for our self-awareness, whether it's utilizing the Enneagram or things like that. When we start to know and uh, know the contours of our minds and the contours of our, of our being in such a way that when things start to tremor or get shaken, we recognize because we're so in, in tune with our bodies, you know, um, when we start having a certain part of our body that hurts or aches and needs to be stretched out or something, we need to be in tune with that so that we know how to deal with our afflictions. And, uh, and I think that there's a lot of uh, beauty and health to be found in those, um, with that type of philosophy. And uh, I see more opportunity for communion with God through the Spirit in that type of framework than I do outside. Um, and so that's why I speak the way I speak and hopefully write the way I write. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, wow, there's a lot to take in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, it just makes so much sense what you're saying, you know. And that, yeah. And one of the things that I, uh, that, that really helps me with, with Jesus and relationship with Jesus is knowing his story and his humanity. Uh, you know that he, he went through he went through emotional and physical trauma. He lost a parent. He was a kind of social outcast. You know, even from childhood, probably. Yeah. Uh, because of the way, because of the nature of his birth and all that. Um, you know, and a lot of his story resonates with my story. So I, yeah. <laughs> I find myself like finding solidarity with Jesus in some senses you know and and that helps I think that's that makes him more divine to me yeah um, it's not like the healing and the resurrection that makes him divine for me it's it's his humanity in a sense if that makes sense <laughs> mm. yeah absolutely you know and I said uh, um I think somewhere in the book I mentioned uh, some quotes from whether it's, I know Brennan Manning was uh, a, a priest that I was able to spend some time with before he passed a few years back. And uh, I remember this quote that he said at this, this little artist retreat thing that I was at several years, uh, over a decade ago. He, I don't know where he wrote this, but I wrote this down. I found it in one of my books that says, healing our image of God heals the image of ourselves. Mm. And I, I, that is a statement that I would encourage anyone, even listening to this, um, stop and just meditate on that. You know, use this space just to press pause and think of the idea of healing our image of God, heals the image of ourselves. And I think when we do that, we we see that there is more because uh, the, the, the veil that has been put up between us and our, our idea of God and us will be broken down. And I think and the fact is there shouldn't have been a veil there to begin with it. And, uh, and there's something to be said for that. But, uh, yeah, I just think that that is such a profound statement. Yeah, that's right. I love that. I love that so much. Yeah, and it's interesting you say it because I've been struggling. Like, recently, I've, I've, because I've done, a lot of, I've done a lot of inner work the last few years, so I'm, I've learned to notice things in myself rather than let them control yeah. me. And so yeah. I've noticed in myself there's some there's some residual anger toward God and yeah. you know like you, you I went through this childhood trauma I lost a parent and you just didn't yeah. do anything like yeah. how can you claim you love me when you didn't do anything and you could have done you know then, yeah. and there's like this kind of resentment of like, I can't. I find it really hard to talk to you, God. Like, and it was, but it's it's been like a oh, this is like a proper relationship, like a mm. like you have with your spouse. You know, like you just you have disagreements and you wrestle and you have, you have arguments or whatever, but you still, but you just work on it. You know, and that's how, yeah. that's my relationship. What my relationship with God is like. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel a lot more intimacy with Jesus, but 
I'm working on the relationship with God, if that makes sense. So uh, it does completely. Yeah. And so with what you said about it, about how that links to how you see yourself, that's yeah, really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's very important. Yeah, but you know, you're you're speaking of you know rhythms and practices. I mean, I think part of what I would say is that um, finding space for stillness. You know, that's mm. that's really difficult today. You know, we've we have everything at our disposal. We have uh, everything is here and now. It's in the palm of our hands, and we have screens on our wrists, screens in our pockets, and screens on our desks, and screens on our nightstands. Um, and, and that is contributing to the noise and the clutter and the, and the somewhat of the informational chaos that we have to experience and navigate today that we didn't really have to do in a few generations before us. Uh, so we have to figure out how to allow the, the use the technology instead of the technology using us. And uh, yes. in that regards, the, the practice uh, that we find is that we have to practice silence. And most of the time we don't know what to do with that because it's so um, uh, foreign. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's uncomfortable, especially for certain personalities more than others. Uh, and that's, it's a difficult thing to navigate, but that is incredibly important space and work that we all need to try to find a, a way of practicing in, in our stillness and silence. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, since I've been part of this community in, in London, I've, I've started to practice silence because we do it on a regular basis every, every almost every meeting mm-hmm. um we have a small we each we go to a small go to a small group from that community and at the end of every meeting we have five minutes of silence like oh, yeah and it's great. just so good no, um great. because you could just it reveals what's going on inside of you because all your thoughts all the stuff that's inside that you were it just gets it just eventually gets filtered out and then you then you're started to to left with what's really going on inside of you it's, it's and it can be really peaceful yeah for sure i think there's that it, it's this reality though for somehow or another we've been conditioned to associate like stillness with laziness or inactivity right and and I think if we even unpack that even further, we think that inactivity, we connect that with failure. And that is so absurd. And, uh, you know, we, we aren't, um, if, like, if we aren't doing something to contribute to our bottom line or income, then we're not doing well. And that's, uh, that's listen, this is really interesting. I, I remember this story because I've, I've spoken about this a few times. I think you'd find this interesting. Now, this this all that we see uh, idling or any kind of stillness, we, we just oppose it on such a, a deep level. And there was actually a study done at the University of Virginia that over two over seven hundred people were asked just to sit in a room alone with their thoughts. And between six minutes and 15 minutes, so just that window was all they were asked to do, between six and 15 minutes. And next to them, they had a button 
that was connected to them with a little bit of voltage, very low voltage, but nonetheless, it would shock them if they pressed it. Mm-hmm. And here's the findings. This is fascinating. This is how, <laughs> this is a snapshot of how much we oppose stillness or silence. Out of those 700 people, six, I think it was 67 percent of men and 25 percent of women chose to actually shock themselves rather than sit in stillness wow wow that's that's fascinating to me yeah it is yeah stillness is psychologically and spiritually imperative for our well-being and they they knew that it was going to be between six and 15 minutes and 67% of these men choose to sh- shock themselves. That's fascinating. And we could unpack the, the deal that only 25% of women actually did that, mm. which says a lot. And But I think we have to be aware of those types of findings, and I think that that's interesting, uh, not just entertaining, that's interesting. But I think it says a lot of how we are wired and how much we oppose stillness and maybe it's because we're afraid of what we may hear or feel in the stillness and I understand that exactly I think we're afraid of what we'll encounter inside ourselves if we stay in silence for too long yeah you know because it does silence reveals silence reveals so much Mm. um I love it I love it I, I think it's the best thing <laughs> i mean i'm an enneagram four so, so obviously i love um sitting and naturally. overthinking and daydreaming and um <laughs> that kind of thing um but um um but uh, yeah but i, I mean I, I it's just and i'm an introvert as well so it's so you know silent contemplation and silent prayer mm-hmm. it's uh yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. It's um, like oxygen. Yes, me. for sure. I think it's unfortunate that people, of even extroverts and other people that feel like we have to, you know, if we just live in this internal space, in this inner space, and that's all we do, then, you know, the world will come crashing down around us. But that's not really the point. The point is we do the inner work in the stillness and silence so that we find out a way of connecting with our creator, you know? And so, uh, I mean, even uh, N.T. Wright says we have to slow down to catch up with God. So it's this, we are so far spread then that we don't know how to do that. And once we're connecting um, in an inner finding peace and sitting in, in, in uh silence we then know how to best care for those around us yeah and those at work those at school those at church those in our family and so it's it's a both and it's not an either or just because the the idea of going and doing and uh, is really unsustainable without this pace of stillness and these practices that help us to connect 
Um, you know, it's it's funny how I I think of the types of music that I used to be a part of and the types of uh, say worship leading that I used to lead. Um, it, it was I was so drained by the end of every worship service, and and I couldn't figure that out. But after a while, I began piecing it together, and it was I was giving this energy that I was trying my best to kind of focus it on God, but truly I wasn't filling that space with inner communion with God. And so I think the outer expressions come from an overflow of what's happening from an inner place. And so uh, if that makes sense, you can't start with just the presentation without having a place and source. And unfortunately, that's what the modern church has kind of become. Yeah, We are a place of presentation and performance, not necessarily knowing how to refill those inner spaces, if we've ever done it even before. Yeah. And, uh, there's something to be said for that. Absolutely. I, I feel that so much with a lot of modern church Mm-hmm. evangelical church and not just conservative but progressive as well like that sure. there's a lot of it that there's just 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 it's just a show mm-hmm. you know that, it, that, 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 that it's all it's all what's going on on the outside and there's nothing about doing all the inner work and the kind of the reflection the silence the yeah. listening the kind of listening to god listening to yourself um because they can it's all connected yeah, and for sure um, it's all loud and you know I, there's just yeah. so much activity mm. you know it's and I would say uh, and some of my therapist friends talk about there's even in the modern church and worship environments there is so much frenetic energy that our eyes can't even slow down mm. because we're looking at the presentation the massive screens the, the haze the lights or what the worship the people on the stage are wearing. Um, it's the the fonts that we are throwing on the screens, the all of this kind of stuff. And it's just it makes us no wonder it makes us feel so anxious. Maybe that plus all the coffee that we're drinking there. And it's <laughs> yes. like there has to be at some point it's interesting how someone asked Walter Brueggemann um, which uh, the, the Sabbath as resistance is one of my favorite books that he's read, written. Um, somebody asked him, you know, what the church needs most today, and his response was something like, "What is most needed in the world today is a non-anxious presence." Mm-hmm. And if we don't know how to cultivate and curate a space of, of reverent stillness where we can connect with God. And we're only, we're saying that the only way is all of this anxious and frenetic energy. We're giving the wrong message and no wonder people are um, uneasy with a church environment or church in general. I think we, many of us make it about, you know, political or, you know, some kind of fundamentalism. But, you know, there's fundamentalism on the left and the right. Absolutely. We, Absolutely. Know, there, we know there is on the right. But it's more than that. It's 
the actual connection and communion or the absence of communion that's actually happening. And, and I think, you know, it, it shouldn't just have to happen in our churches, but it, it needs to happen in our churches as well as our uh, private devotion. Absolutely, yeah. I couldn't agree more with that. We, yeah, and we shouldn't be afraid of it either. You know, we need just... Sure. I know that it takes a lot of courage to go to that place because you're confronting not just you're confronting yourself as much as anything else, and you're yeah, going to places yeah. that you don't want to go to. But um, and it feels like a lot of fundamentalism, whether it's on the left or the right in in the church, mm-hmm. is about building structures around that to hide from yeah. it rather than yeah. actually deal with it. You know because. Because building a structure around it and then carrying on with your life as if it's not there isn't actually healing. Mm-hmm. It's it's mm-hmm. just it's another form of addiction in a sense. You're just trying to medicate yeah. the problem. Yeah. Um, when actually the only way the only way out is through. You know, I love that phrase yeah. because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> really good. Yeah. So. Um, well, this has been really, really amazing. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours, and not, and we're not run out of things to talk about. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to do this again. I, I mean, I would, Absolutely. I would love to, to yeah. do this again. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'd love to have a, more of a conversation about uh, uh, just really the, you know, the ongoing uh, pilgrimage that we we find ourselves on. Absolutely, yeah. I think, yeah. I think um, I have a few multiple guests on this on the show, so um, I've got a feeling you're going to be one of them. <laughs> so, right, um, yeah, we'll set that up um, definitely um, because, yeah, and it, I think it'd be more picking up the conversation rather than starting a new one in the sense because I think this conversation is <laughs> going to keep on going. So, um, yeah, for sure. But just to finish, I mean, like, what's what's the biggest piece of wisdom that you've learned about the spiritual journey? Oh, that's a huge question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure of how to answer that. There's a there's an ongoing learning, and so it's that uh, it's that idea that we never really arrive; that we're just constantly journeying, mm. and and so uh, yeah, and even as uh, as a priest, I tell I tell people, you, know, you have a concept that you uh, maybe expect of God, and or maybe even of yourself, and that may or may not be real or true. Um, so I think this ongoing learning is that you know. Uh, use the old word of uh, sanctification wasn't an instantaneous transformation Mm. Uh, sanctification was meant to be a long and patient process that happens over the course of time and I think if we could just give ourselves permission to not have it all figured out there's a big difference between being lazy and apathetic and allowing space for the spirit to move in our life. And uh, I think, you know, there's a posture of humility that comes with giving ourselves permission to keep learning 
and we'll never have it figured out. So I think that that's what, um, that's a very current and present state um, and a roundabout way of answering. But I think I, I constantly just want to be learning. I want to keep growing. Yeah, that's my, that's something I say to myself all the time. Just keep growing. I, yeah. I never want to stop growing. I never want to, yeah. I always want to be learning new things. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on, Chad. Yeah, thank you, Jerry. Um, and I guess people can find all your work on online and, and, and other places. Yeah, absolutely. So just search for, uh, just search for Chad. I think it's chaddarnigan.com, so uh, just go and check yep. that out. And there's loads of work, loads of amazing stuff there. So, uh, yeah. So thank you for coming on, and I'm sure you'll be back on. So uh, I look That's forward beautiful. to that. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody.